This is full disclosure, where you don't really hear much from Mike. That's me, by the way. Where you hear more about the guest. Today, we're going to hear from a guest who knows a lot about demons and demonology and the spiritual combat. Charles Franny joins us from Charlotte, North Carolina. He's written two books. I want to read their full titles to you. The first that he wrote is Swords and Shadows, Navigating Youth Amidst the Wilds of Satan. And then the second book is Slaying Dragons, What Exorcists See and What We Need to Know. Let's get started. Thanks so much for joining the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, what got you so interested in demons? <laughs> I know it's a it's a a topic that draws a lot of curiosity, and that could be a negative thing if you're not careful, uh, if that's what drives you. But it was not curiosity, thanks be to God, that drove me to study demons. It was actually uh, it makes a it makes a great story. So I really see this book, these books, both of them, as kind of a fruit of divine providence in my life. Uh, about four years ago, I. I hit what I call a spiritual plateau, just this this moment where I felt like I could not progress anymore in holiness. And I didn't like that, didn't like where I was, spiritually speaking. Um, it wasn't that I was in a negative spiritual state. I was, it was active with my prayer life and everything, but I wanted to be holier, and I felt like I could not. And that's a very important little detail. I felt an, an obstacle, a blockade. And I started to speak to some priests, because as a former seminarian, I, I gravitate towards priests. I like having priests as friends. Um, so I talked to some priests who I later learned are very well trained in uh, deliverance things, exorcism uh, ministry, and they had some some concrete advice for me. So the, the first thing I did was um, Exodus 90, a modified form. But what I did for three months, I had a lot of fasting and a lot of prayer. And that began this spiritual renewal that involved uh, an analysis of my past, of my youth, which was really plagued by depression and anxiety. I dropped out of college as a result of it all, and then I had a huge conversion 20 years ago when I was 20. But there was a lot of baggage, a lot of spiritual baggage, what I call, um, eventually labeled as like diabolical tagalongs, just these nagging, clinging spirits, so to speak, um, that were just a burden. But when I went through this fasting and these renunciations and I learned about the binding prayer, I was then introduced to uh, Father Ripperker's teachings online, his conferences, his videos, his writings. And I started just watching all of his videos for about a year. And everything he was saying was related, relating directly to this spiritual blockade I felt. Um, certain, I already had a master's in theology at that point, but I felt like half of what he was saying I had never heard before when it came to the diabolical, how demons work, what motivates them, the role of the father, um, the power of sacramentals. I knew about holy water and some other things, but I was really just felt like I was learning so much stuff that I should have picked up a long time ago. Uh, but it was also hitting all of these, the, the issue of the spiritual plateau and I started to experience a lot of breakthroughs, um, which I can talk about later, but a lot of new grace, a new, appreci a new appreciation for, for theology, for sacraments, sacramentals, 
And as a result, I had a, a great spiritual breakthrough probably about two years after I started desiring it. So it took a lot of work. The fasting, I think, was essential. Um, renunciations of past sins, uh, learning about the binding prayer and using it. And that all led, as I did all this research, uh, I, I, I'm a researcher, I'm a, a writer, so I was taking notes on everything Father Ripperger was saying, and then I brought in all these other exorcists, studied their books and their videos, and I realized I have so much material here, I should write a book, I need to collect this. And one of the motivators there was, I'm benefiting so much from this material, but no one else is going to get up at 4, a few people are going to get up at 4 a.m. every day study these things over and over again, take down detailed notes of what what the highlights are, and then study it and retain it and implement mm -hmm. it. So I felt like I needed to organize this. And then, you know, it just went from there and so, I got the book. Have you been exercised before? Did you require exorcism to sort of break out of your, your past spiritual baggage? Or were you able to uh, overcome these things just by the power of prayer fasting? Yeah, just by by the latter. Um, thankfully, what I what I Father Ripperger says that twenty five percent of Americans, maybe throughout the whole world, but definitely in our country, are diabolically ob uh, obsessed, N not possessed or oppressed, but obsessed, which is a harassment to the mind, just a bombardment of constant thoughts. It can have different degrees. So I felt like I had, because of the power of the depression and the anxiety, that took me out of college, almost took me out of high school, combined with um. A digestive disorder that went with all of that and just the power of all that and how I was kind of a I was a nominal Catholic as a kid and uh, didn't get into the occult but was curious about it and dabbled a, a little bit so sufficient to get the attention of demons most mm -hmm. likely uh, when I was in high school middle school again just a little bit but enough <laughs> you know, I, I went close enough so but I think all I picked up was um, a certain degree of diabolical obsession and then the fasting, the renunciations, the analysis of all of those sins. Like I essentially did a general confession, but in a different form, being led by this priest and just being forced to confront the evil of it in the context of fasting. Uh, I was doing two rosaries um, for about 35 days. Was it like 40 days? I was doing two rosaries as part of this thing with the priest. Then he did just minor um, like deliverance prayers over me. Um, I guess you, I guess they'd be minor exorcisms, but I never had to do, you know, a major exorcism. Did you feel, did you feel some tremendous weight uh, or relief uh, just with those deliverance prayers? Or was there ever a moment where you felt like, uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm better? Yeah, I, it, I'm, I've never uh, really talked about this in a podcast. It's a, uh, it's a good question. Um, when he, when we, so I did, um, the 90 days of fasting and then, uh, wrote down all of my all of the evil things that I can remember from my life. This was part of what the priest was leading me through. In a letter, I c confessed them out loud to our Lord in a chapel by by myself, and I gave the priest the letter, and he burned it. And then I began this double rosary thing, consecrating each year of my life to Our Lady for her to heal. And at the end of it, we had this session together where he uh, led me through renunciations, binding prayers, and prayed over me to a certain extent. And I was expecting or hoping. Um, I also did a novena to Our Lady Undoer of Knots as part of that. But I was expecting some some kind of tangible um, effect, but I felt nothing. And I thought that was very interesting, that there was no sensation of anything changing. But that's when I began the study of what exorcists teach. So it, it was a handoff almost. It was like, okay, you've done all the spiritual work. Now I need to retrain your mind. 
So that's what God was, was doing with me as I entered all this research. And a year later, I started to implement the sacramentals. So I already had a good confession, you know, frequent confession. But when I started to implement all of these new teachings using holy water, blessed candles, blessed oil, blessed salt, uh, St. Benedict medals everywhere, getting like crucifixes blessed and using them with this really surging devotion, which is key for sacramentals, I did experience about a year later the effects. So I think it was, let's do the timeline, I think it was almost, almost exactly a year later um, after that purification, spiritual renewal thing that I did with the priest. It was almost one year later that I really did receive it. What, this is what I call it, was a spiritual warfare grace. Mm-hmm. It was the grace to understand in the moment exactly what the devil's plan was against me. And where it was like the veil had been pulled back, I could see the plan, see the attack, see the buttons he was pushing, see how they tied back to my old life, my old habits. And then I felt the courage, almost like the Holy Spirit giving me the gift of fortitude to just take him on, you know, take the devil on internally using the binding prayer and things like that. And that initiated this huge weight off of my shoulders as you, I think that was the language you used, but it was at that moment with the sac, it all began. Actually, that grace was given to me when I made a confession after using blessed salt, blessed candles, um, blessed oil, like everything with intense devotion. Cause I was just yearning for these graces to come the graces that are promised in the wording. If you read the wording of the blessings over those things, I wanted that. I wanted this healing. I wanted this, like, drive the devil away. Those are in the, the sacramentals. And then he, he gave it to me. Given the, the the fact that the sacramentals played such an instrumental role in your healing and recovery, what we've seen uh, from the bishops is in this so-called pandemic that they've withheld essentially all the sacramentals from the faithful from coast to coast Mm -hmm. across the land. What would you say to the bishops who apparently have no faith in the sacramentals? Yeah, that's what it, uh, I always, you know, fear to criticize the bishops, but by, by shutting the churches, by drying out the one, one person pointed out the first thing to go was the holy water in the church. And I'm like, uh, no, no, <laughs> um, we, we need this because people are already ignorant. I mean, I was ignorant before I did this research. Like I was an active Catholic who was ignorant of the power of sacramentals and really the power of grace and how God can actually heal us. So then when you when you push people away or already don't know uh, and you take away the sacramentals, you take away mass, you, you almost trivialize the whole package the whole sacramental system that the, that Christ has given us through the church. You trivialize it. Like, okay, well, the virus is so bad, we'll take it all away. But everybody will be okay because you have, you know, spiritual communions and, you know, perfect contrition that you can do to acquire the same graces. But um, it, it's, it's not the same. Um, <laughs> it's not the same. And it was shocking because mm-hmm. um, it was shortly after I published this book. Of course, we had the, the Pachamama thing. I think it was like... I think a week after I published my book was the Pachamama thing. Um, but then a couple months later is this this pandemic issue, uh, whatever you, it really is. Um, yeah, so they, the bishops should be doing the opposite. And I remember some were like, no, we're going to have more masses. We're going we're gonna to open up further because we need the graces. But I think they were oppressed you know, by the, by the culture at large and yeah. forced to shut down. 
What incredible timing, though, that your book comes out right after the Pacha, or right, right around the time of the Pachamama, and, and at a time when you know spiritual warfare is at its peak, it seems. Um, a couple things that are kind of in the Catholic zeitgeist right now, and I want to ask you about both of them, and then we'll get into the books. Um, mm-hmm. The first is the, the, the wars on Twitter are endless, and uh, Catholic Twitter is a dumpster fire. If you're not there, don't go there, and if you are there, maybe consider retreating from the battlefield. But uh, one of the things that really sets people off, Harry Potter. Uh, Some people are very much pro-Potter. Some are Mm anti-Potter. Some exorcists are pro-Potter. Some are anti-Potter. I know Father Ripperger is anti-Potter. Are you you pro Mm -hmm. or anti-Harry Potter and why? (laughs) Um, Well, as a high school theology teacher and to juniors and seniors, I've learned I've, for 10 years, I've learned to uh, not to be not to compromise the truth, but to be diplomatic in the way I um, tear down things that I think should be torn down. So fundamentally, I would be anti Harry Potter. But the but I appreciate the points being made. So in the book, I take the anti Harry Potter stance because the substantial evidence, in my opinion, weighs against Harry Potter. Some of the arguments I've heard in defense of Harry Potter are are just are weak. They're much weaker than the arguments against Harry Potter. Because one of the things, and I've, I've done some analysis, I haven't f- finished it. Uh, I asked God lots of times for more time to finish all these research projects. But if you look at the the fallout, so to speak, or the gifts that Harry Potter has given to the culture, um, they're not good. Like the fallout's not good. The imagine, The magical imagination. So magic can be like just, you know, imagination. But magic in the sort in the the witchcraft sense that's what harry potter brings a fascination about witchcraft if i had read harry potter as a kid it would have been bad mm-hmm. i would have latched on hoped this world to be this harry potter world to be real and that was one of the criticisms i've heard is that harry potter takes place in this world which makes it seem like it's tangible it's findable it's it's real and available whereas like lord of the rings is in a fantasy realm. It's, a, it's a, a parallel kind of earth. So there are certain laws you can bend. There's certain, it, it's not real in the same sense. So you, you're never going to see a Balrog. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a metaphor. It's um, a fantasy, a pure myth. It's a mythological, you could say, for uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, and also, if you moral, do a moral analysis of Harry Potter, um, I, w- I want to sit down eventually and just tear through all the books to give a much more analytical um, criticism of it. But the the like the ends justify the means kind of things. There are a lot of moral compromises that Harry Potter embraces, using power against people, using power to your advantage, magic, I should say, to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, uh, and then if you want to get into what exorcists have heard and learned by doing exorcisms, like Harry Potter comes up. Um, J.K. Rowling, if that's how you say her name, comes up like the, the book itself comes up and demons have claimed, I'm pretty sure it's in the book somewhere, have claimed part responsibility for the inspiration of the book. Uh, I haven't been able to verify this myself, but uh, Father Ripperker, I think he's the one that mentions uh, J.K. Rowling used um, uh, auto write this diabolical channeling technique to come up with the idea. And that would be, you know, highly suspect because when you it's kind of like a Ouija board when you just open yourself up to spirits. That's what a Ouija board is. That's what a seance is. That's what channeling is. And the spirits are there. And if you do that, you're breaking the the first commandment and God will allow demons to talk to you. But 
it's it's going to end poorly. It's going to damage you. It's going to fill you with lies. Of course, demons lie. Um, so what exorcists hear in their sessions, like how much can be believed? And I think this is where people go after the evidence that exorcists bring up, um, the, which they've derived from the sessions where the demons are talking. Exorcist, uh, people are like, well, how, do you, how can you trust them? They're liars. But if many times that comes up in my book, Father Fortea talks about having to believe and being able to believe what the demons are saying. Because yes, they're liars, but sometimes they're commanded to tell the truth. I think it was um, on the issue of whether um, damned souls can possess people. Exorcists are divided on this as well. Father Fortea, he's in my book, he's one who believes that it is possible because he's seen that there's a possessor, there's a spirit possessing somebody, and he'll command the spirit to uh, like kiss a crucifix or uh, do other things that are contrary to a, the demon's nature, and the demon will obey. And at the same time, he keeps repeating, the demon does, that he's not a demon, he's actually a damned soul. So there's credibility can be given to what the demons are saying at some points, but uh, that would be a, like highly skilled exorcists would be able to figure it out because demons are trained liars. I mean, that's their nature. Um, word of caution, I suppose, for anyone who's watching right now that it's, it's unadvisable, I would say, to listen to actual audio recordings, right, of uh, anything that, you know, from a session that a demon may or may not say. I know that some podcasters, and I, I unfortunately think this is very irresponsible, have published the raw audio from the sessions from a young girl in Germany uh, that story right. ended up becoming a movie, and the things, speaking of credibility of demons, the things that the demons were saying uh, related directly to the hierarchy in Germany and, and to the Second Vatican Council and, and all that, and, and it's very explosive stuff, and it's very sad if it's true. What are your thoughts on just the principle of lay people engaging in this and, and, and the proper precautions you need to take. And then secondly, just the specifics of that particular event. Um, I've, I know her name wasn't Emily Rose, but the movie was called the exorcism Emily Rose and they transported her in, in Hollywood fashion to the United States. But it was really, a, I think a Bavarian, um, exorcism. Yeah. So, um, right. Lay people listening to those, um, I'm not a fan of doing so. Like I've seen the audio being played or the video, I mean, it's not a video, just audio. And it's, uh, I don't like watching movies where the devil is present in the movie. And this is like, especially after writing the book, but even beforehand, uh, it could be that I personally, you know, I'm a little bit not scarred, but sensitive to it because of the little dabbling of, in the occult when I was in middle school and also the depression and the anxiety, like all those things are kind of terrifying. And, um, but there's, there's a certain perplexing uh, spiritual per perplexion that could happen by listening to demons talk. Because when a demon is speaking through the body of a person, it is the demon talking. And there's a certain, like, uh, exorcist, when they have a team working with them for an exorcism, they'll have lay people, uh, laymen there, laymen, laywomen, um, helping, either just praying or holding people down. But they have to choose them very carefully. And, like, oh, so I think his father... Um, Father Amorth uses a word, or maybe it was Father uh, Ripperker. Um, something that can't be 
gullible. I can't remember what the word was, but they have to be really strong in character. So be, because the demon will seek to mess with them. Now, w- this example we're talking about is a pre-recorded thing, so the demon's not live. Um, but the demons, you know, would love for their voices to be proclaimed, because that actually it could go. You could say it's, it's a very negative thing because when you celebrate the name of a demon, when you use the name of a demon, it gives, as Father Ripperger says, it gives them glory. And they like it. They gain a little bit of power, influence, a little bit of mystique. You know, they become famous. You should never want, we should want to to shut the demons away, not let them interact with us. And even in a pre-recording, um, you're going to have that kind of uh, uh, temptation to to a negative, dangerous curiosity. That would be the ultimate harm. If you're like, I wonder what else demons would say. You know, it's neat looking, listening to what demons are saying. Like if any kind of curiosity about what the demons are going to say pops up in your mind, mm-hmm. that's a big red flag because they will speak to you if you want them to. And if you give them the avenue, open the door for them to do so. And that would be, that would only lead to negatives. Um, and you asked about what the content of that. Yeah. I mean, if the follow up then is in the case of that particular exorcism which was made famous by the movie later but the con the actual contents the actual audio from those sessions is available if you look hard Mm -hmm. enough for it and some folks have actually played that audio and the translation is you know pretty damning stuff about the german hierarchy who was ostensibly compromised at and and uh, following the Second Vatican Council. So interesting, um, but should lay people be listening to it? And how, how, do, how can you as an outsider or I or anyone evaluate the credibility of those statements by, um, you know, by devils? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I would, yeah, I would say to, uh, Almost ignore it. I think the best thing would be to ignore it because maybe what the demons are saying is right, but you don't want, uh, as a layman, uh, um, you don't want to give, you don't want to make a demon a source for your information. If the exorcist discerned that what the demon said was trustworthy, then the exorcist can tell us. And there should be logical, historical, verifiable um, corroboration for what the demon's going to say if he's criticizing an historical event like that. And so then we could just say, yeah, my inclination would be partly because it would be to ignore it, partly because of the, the, like you said, the, the damning nature of it. Uh, some of the current crises the church is going through are, are too big for us, like too big for me. Like I, I can't fix it. The more I think about it, the more burdened I feel, the more distracted I feel from maintaining my own spiritual life. Focusing on the day to day, like how much scripture am I reading? Am I at peace? Um, because I think sometimes in the technological era, where we can know so much, know so much news, so many things that are bad, and then our heart wants us to, our heart or our pride causes us to want to try to fix mm-hmm. it. That we, but we can't. So it just like spreads us too thin. And then I think like what Bilbo Baggins from Lord of the Rings, like we feel often like uh, butter scraped across too much bread. And then we're if we're burnt out by worrying about everything that's going wrong, um, that we can't function, you know, day to day and doing the fulfilling God's will, and that would just that would make us putty in the demons' hands if we're burnt out. 
so that would be a criticism about that information, I guess. Let's get to your books. I know uh, you have talked in your books about the Council of Demons, and there are five that sit on this council. I thought this was an interesting detail because just last week, Father Ripperger put out a talk on Census Fidelium, a talk he gave in Phoenix, in which he, I think the title is something like the the state of the spiritual battlefield, and he talks yeah. pretty decent length about each of these five and what the specific names of them are, which we don't have to say here, um, mm-hmm. and the effects of those five and what we're seeing in our culture today. You cover this in the book. Talk to us just a little bit about the the council. Yeah, so the, the idea is um, fundamentally that um, the spirits, the, all the angels, all the nine choirs were created in a hierarchy, and the demons fell from that hierarchy. So they took their hierarchical structure with them and maintained this, um, this structure. So Satan's obviously at the top. But then exorcists have learned through exorcisms that there is this council. When I first heard it in his talks, I was it was just bewildering that one that exorcists could figure this out. And this is one of the things where they they see it so many times that they realize it is a structure. Um, it is a structure of how the, the diabolical function. And there is a consistency then, so exorcists can learn. Um, and that enables them to use weapons because it is a war. It's a battle. If you read the rite of exorcism, you see that. So there are five demons. Uh, I think some of their names are in scripture. Some are not. Um, and then one of them, um, I'll, it's, it's very, it's a very public one is, uh, I think you could say it's Baphomet. I won't mention the others, but this one is in the news a lot from Satanists. Modern day Satanists are very obsessed with this, this demon. They've made statues. They pray. It's, it's in my book in chapter 11, where I talk about, um, the modern day situation with the occult quite a bit. And Church Militant covered this many years ago when they came, I think they came to Detroit to dedicate the statue at a satanic celebration. And people snuck in and videotaped it and wrote reports on it. And it, um, these five demons, and this one as well, is related, they are related to some of the chief sins that our country is plagued by, is being crushed under, is being like dictated to. If you think about the, the cancel culture, it's wielding these weapons, the, the LGBT, the same sex, the uh, uh, abortion, pornography, all of these things are the champion vices of the, this council. And these are the most destructive uh, moral forces that, that man can face. And we're facing them blind. Uh, we talked about you know, being deprived of the sacraments and sacramentals during this whole you know, COVID thing. Like we're being deprived of those things in the era when these five demons are are empowered and are just pounding. Think about what that, you know, pornography, whatever that pornography group was when the whole shutdown happened. They made everything free, made all of the pornography free and accessible to everybody. Like that's a gift from a demon. Mm. I mean, this is pure diabolical and you're giving it to people who are cut off from confession, cut off from the Eucharist. Mm. And I have some, some great quotes from some of the great saints about the power of the Eucharist to transform us. And if we don't have, it's not a spiritual communion. The actual Eucharist is required to transform us. Um, so it's like we're just sitting ducks, so to speak, uh, spiritually. Um, and so th- this is definitely the time. If you think about all these things, when we can't take our faith lightly, we, we have to be in a deep sacramental life. Sacraments and sacramentals, all these, these blessings. Uh, because these demons are showing up more and more and more. Um, in that chapter 11 in the book, 
I talk about how over the last, I think it was last five or eight years, um, the word pastoral emergency has been used by higher ups in like, I think it was the International Association of Exorcists. I referred to the, the rise in the diabolical activity, the rise in curiosity in the occult, in the occult all throughout the world is a pastoral emergency for many reasons, because we don't have enough exorcists to challenge it. Um, and we don't have enough people trained in it. And the, the average layman doesn't understand how dangerous it is. So it's, it's just spreading like wildfire. And I think, uh, an exorcist was, I was reading his book recently, uh, father Lampert, um, He's an American exorcist. He was talking about the number of exorcists has greatly increased over the last 20 years, after over the last 10 years, because the church is realizing that we we dropped this. As Father Ripperger talks about, we dropped this ministry. We should never have post-Vatican II. Father Morth and others kept it alive, and now new exorcists are being trained. Uh, but it's necessary. It's not an optional. It's not a fringe thing. Spiritual warfare needs to be in the in the forefront um, everybody's mind. With respect to the pastoral emergency, I know some exorcists have talked about how much more powerful the demons are um, relative to how how easy a session would have been prior to the 1960s. And some have said it is the, it is as though there was a switch that was flipped one day in the 1960s, right around the time of the Second Vatican Council, after which a what would have been a one-hour session turned into a one-month session, let's say, and uh, mm. and the, the demons are becoming stronger and harder to get rid of. Have you seen this in your research? And do you think there's a correlation? You talk about the council and all of the all of the sins about you know uh, the, the sixth and ninth commandment, and you think about the baby boomers and the cultural revolution mm. of the '60s, as well as the ecclesiastical revolution of the '60s. Do you think there's it's all tied together? Yeah, I've never I've actually never heard uh, that detail. So uh, my research, you know, after writing this book, I haven't stopped because there's still so much out there. But I can that's completely believable um, because as Father Ripper, he's one of the main ones I remember talking about just the church dropping the ministry, dropping so many traditional beliefs post Vatican II. But if you think about, I was writing an article, I haven't finished it yet, but. The, the vision of Pope Leo Thirteenth and the St. Michael prayer, how after Vatican II, they stopped saying the prayer as well, like after Masses. I think across the world, same time that, you know, altar girls started and communion in the hands started, all these things that were never permitted started, and then the command to say the St. Michael prayer after every Mass just stopped as well, and the belief in it stopped, the the belief in traditional theology stopped, catechesis and R.C., and R, um, um, just Sunday school, CCD, just became, you know, drawing rainbows and butterflies. Like something bad happened. A flip, a switch was flipped. But my thought was that, you know, we don't know when, Sa so Pope Leo's vision that Satan was given a century with more power and more influence over mankind to pull us all away from him, all away from God. And that was granted to the devil in this vision that Pope Leo had. We don't know exactly when it started. Maybe right then. Some people think maybe it started 1917 when Our, when Our Lady of Fatima showed up to to challenge it. Um, but whenever it started, um, let's say let's say it's finished. Let's say the hundred years are up. What the devil was doing the whole time, because he's smart, was preparing um, his pro his his successors, so to speak. He was cultivating the culture to be on a path of self destruction when this when this 
extra power um, was, you know, time time's up. Um, so the cultural revolution, the sexual revolution, the ecclesiastical revolution, all those things in the 60s were all part of whatever plan Satan had once Christ gave him the power. It was all part of the plan that Christ permitted as a test, as a test for our fidelity, which we know he's going to do. We know our Lord's going to allow us to be tested. We have to be tested to see if we're faithful. But he's going to use he's going to use demons and the diabolical, you know, mechanisms and connivings and plan to to carry it out. So completely, completely believable. And you can see the the fruit of it now. Like our whole our conversation so far has been like giving evidence to uh, even think about the popularity of Harry Potter. Like why was that book so explosively po- popular throughout the world? This book about a witch, you know, a boy witch and witchcraft and power. Um, because it's it was poured into a vacuum, into a, a vacuum of grace where there was no grace. And then people people crave something to worship. Cr- people crave a power. They want help. They want control over things, over their life. And Satan will give us another tool if we push God away. Speaking of the St. Michael prayer, what are your thoughts on the full version of the St. Michael prayer? Uh, a lot of people are kind of skittish on it. They say the laity are not permitted to pray the full version. Do you have a thought on that? Uh, uh, I've... I haven't analyzed it too much. I know there's there's a caution about it because it is so strong. But I remember reading through it a few times in the past several years and enjoying it. Um, so I haven't analyzed it in a while so to be able to speak um, um, enlighteningly about it. But we do need to be careful. I guess maybe the, the, the care is that if we're if we're going to take on the devil and we're not spiritually strong enough, then we're going to we're asking for trouble. So perhaps that prayer is just so bold, even though it, if it is invoking our Lord, if saying, you know, oh, Jesus, I ask you to do this, then that's safe. But if we're not allowed to command demons um, directly unless they're attacking us. So, yeah, I guess it's, it's such a powerful prayer that perhaps and this is just me speculating. Perhaps the caution is there because the church is aware that most people are relatively faithless. Mm-hmm. And untrained, even the faithful are, are untrained on a lot of spiritual principles. So to take up a prayer this bold, it could could backfire or could cause curiosity, too much curiosity. But yeah, I uh, can't say much more than that at the moment. Well, let's get into Let's use our final time together to get into some other practical stuff. I mean, obviously praying the short form of the St. Michael prayer that we're all familiar with, that we pray after low mass is a good thing, and it's something that you should do nightly. Is there some other litany or some other group of prayers that you uh, re- would recommend to people that they include into their daily habits? Yeah, the uh, Auxilium Christianorum is a great spiritual community that people should join. I was trying to figure out in my own story, like when I started doing that, and it was about a year or two before I hit that spiritual plateau, which I thought was interesting because what I think, so that's a, a daily is a um, certain habit. You're supposed to pray the rosary daily. It's uh, you make this. It's not a vow, but it's it's a commitment. It's not binding. You should get your spiritual director or your pastor to to uh, his advice to make sure you are spiritually um, ready because you're you're engaging in spiritual warfare on a higher level. You're joining a community of spiritual warriors and exorcists. So it's not dangerous to your spiritual life to to begin it, but it will increase. Your spiritual life will become a little more intense, perhaps is the only admonition given. But every day of the week, there's a different prayer related to um, pushing demons away, protecting yourself, your family, and the ministry of exorcists from diabolical activity. But the the uh, litany of the precious blood 
is part of that. So invoking the precious blood, calling down the precious blood of our Lord on us, on our families, that's a powerful practice that would be recommended. Um, daily rosary is, is just has to be done. And I've been studying that one, some old sacramental books, and they're very encouraging. Just, just do it. Just, just do the rosary. Even if you're distracted, you know, you can do some menial tasks. And also while you're praying the rosary, you just got to pray the rosary. It's meditative, it's contemplative, and that's a big power. Getting sacred thoughts into your mind, because the devil first attacks in your intellect through ordinary temptation. And if your mind is sanctified, steeped in, in what is holy, then the demons can't really do much with you. So that's one of the big powers with prayer. The more we pray, the more we're recollected in God, and the less the demons can initiate their attacks. Um, so I would say also regular use of, of holy water, um, blessed salt. You can you can consume these things. This is one of the neat things. Like you can put blessed salt on your food and study the blessings. One of the things I'm trying to do is, is promote a knowledge of what these blessings are in the traditional Roman ritual, what the words are, because the church is commanding in the name of Christ a certain spiritual effect onto and to be acquired through the devout use of these elements, salt, water, crucifixes, like surround yourself with, with sacred images and crucifixes. Um, so these are externals and internals, meditation internal and these sacramentals external. And uh, of course, fasting. Uh, I think we've lost the love of fasting that the old church had, that the early church had. Um, even myself, I'm still learning it, even though I know uh, how powerful it is. It's only, it seems to be mainly Lent that I fast because, you know, we're very materialistic and that's, that's a, a great danger. Yeah. And, fa- and even according to the 1983 code, I mean, fasting is essentially skipping a meal and a half and you're only required to do so t- twice in the year. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's no wonder that fasting has fallen out of favor in the, in the uh, post-Christian West. Mm-hmm. Um, sacramentals bless salt somebody actually asked me this question recently and i'm happy to i'm happy to kick it over to you they say okay i put my bless salt in my food and then what and then what do i do with my leftovers because i know that i've got bless salt in my leftovers and is there a proper way to dispose of this is this is this just somebody being uh, super scrupulous or is this a real concern (laughs) yeah i've had that ever since i heard that practice and started doing it i'm like hmm well i just i I'm full. I don't want to be gluttonous, but there's some blessed salt right there. And uh, I bounced it off of one exorcist and I kind of, you know, gave him my suggestion that it's not the precious blood. It's not the Eucharist. It's like holy water, which we just throw around everywhere. Um, You don't want to toss out blessed salt or toss out holy water. But if you're using it, if you're sprinkling it everywhere, you're not really keeping up Mm -hmm. with it. So it seems like it would be scrupulous to uh, fuss over accidentally throwing someone's to the trash can. Um, I still want like father Ripperker to tell me that personally, but, or so, a whole bunch of exorcists just to confirm because you know, it's, it's okay to be a little scrupulous. Um, but I've kind of embraced that idea that, you know, it's okay if a little bit goes into the trash, as long as you're not throwing out the blessed salt mm. With the idea that we we throw around holy water, we just bless everything. We don't keep up with it. It lands on the floor, and that's not a that's not a, if it lands on the floor, you know, because it's it was sprinkled there to be a blessing. So as long as you're intentional with the use of of blessed salt, 
and you put it on your food, remembering this is blessed salt. God has blessed this. This has, I, I pray that God gives me the graces through this blessed salt. Then you've sprinkled it all over your plate. And, you know, kind of, you know, the angels will keep up with it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Some's going in the dishwasher. I'm just saying some of it will make it in. <laughs> um, Charles Franny, the books are Slaying Dragons and Swords and Shadows. Where can we find the books, Charles? Well, they are, um, people don't like Amazon, but um, these are, this is really a self-publish, self-publishing success story. So they're, they're on Amazon, but they're also on my website, theretreatbox.com. And people are coming there more, which I appreciate because Amazon gets less money from the sale of the book and then more of the royalties would go to me. So it's on Amazon. Both are on Amazon or theretreatbox.com. Theretreatbox.com. What is that? Is there some other retreat box that we need to know about? What is the retreat box? Yeah, it was the original idea um, about six years ago, um, which never took off. My wife and I had the idea of selling a box with like everything you need to go on like a one day retreat. Holy water, blessed candle, maybe a cookie, a retreat book that I wrote. I wrote a book about how to take a retreat. Um, and then you'd sell it for like, you know, 30 bucks or whatever it was worth. And so then we said, hey, let's get a website called The Retreat Box to sell The Retreat Box. But then that product kind of just fizzled. And then I started writing books, but we kept the name. So Retreat Box Press is one of the names I use for the the uh, the stamp on my books, the imprint. Um, but maybe one day if I have more time, I'll, I'll start, you know, advertising the, my retreat boxes again. Thank you so much for joining us today, Charles. And, uh, please come back. I have many more questions for you. I want to, I want to talk to you about, um, the spiritual warfare outside of the Catholic church and whether or not demons attack mm-hmm. Protestants and all those things. So come back and let's talk about it. Yes, that'd be great. Happy to. Thank you so much. Hey, if you enjoyed this content, please consider subscribing to the channel. Give this video a like so that the Russian bots at YouTube will present the video to more people and they can get this information as well. Thank you so much for watching. God bless you. This is Full Disclosure.